and I just encourage you guys as um, he is reading this passage that you would just close your eyes and enjoy the poetry and the creativity that we see with God's creation through this passage that you would really just rest and enjoy it, okay? Um, and after that time, we'll allow all of the fourth and fifth graders to travel downstairs as well with us, okay? Oh, and I forgot the most important thing. Not the most important thing. <laughs> we have journals for them um, so that as they enter into this next season, um, they are able to enjoy um, journaling as they're here in big church with their families. We love you guys. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called light, night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and it was so. God called the vault sky, and there is evening, and there is morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear. And it was so. And God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seeds according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great cre creatures of the sea and every living thing which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning on the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God, created the man, so God created mankind in his own image, and in the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there is evening and there is morning the sixth day. All right, thank you, James. 
My name is Brandon. Uh, here at Soma, I'm known as James's dad. I also serve as one of the uh, one of the pastors here at Soma. We are starting a new series today on uh, power, um, and we're looking at it from Genesis one. I was thinking about um, power last night. I was <clears throat> at a concert up in uh, it was kind of a concert up in the um, Noblesville Fishers area. Uh, Symphony on the Prairie. I know many of you have not been blessed to have this experience, but throughout the summer they have different shows and uh, different acts, and they're just kind of imitations or covers for uh, famous artists. Last night, and again, without any shame, without any hint of shame, I am very much a passionate Whitney Houston fan. It was Whitney Houston night. And so uh, I uh, was surprised to even find out that some of the younger, so I'm reminded how old I am, even at 38, uh, some of the people that were in our crew that were just five to seven years younger than me were talking about Whitney Houston in present terms, not aware that she had passed away. So this is my life, uh, educating people on uh, conversations ranging from Whitney Houston to Millie Vanilli uh, last night and then sending people to YouTube. Uh, to look up things that they should know. Um, but nevertheless, this is, this is my plight. This is my burden. Uh, and I was thinking about, when you begin to think about life through power dynamics, you begin to see um, power is inherent to our world. Um, last night, uh, you think about the different aspects of power that are on display. So <clears throat> the architecture, the way that the amphitheater is created to give the impression of, to exaggerate certain aspects of uh, a person, there are video screens that are enlarging them, that is an act of power, taking something that's small, making it bigger. Um, you think about the way that even it's set up and designed, there's a stage intended to raise somebody up to give both visibility but also credibility. Um, there's sound amplification, right, like electrical engineering that allows us to be able to hear these beautiful vocals. Um, the power of this woman that was Whitney Houston last night was amazing. I mean, she beat out 14,999 other applicants, right? That is some serious vocal and creative power. She is uh, South African, so there were cultural power dynamics. Most of the band, I don't think any of the band was American. There was one from Canada, so I don't know if we claim them uh, as North American or whatever, but like there's all kinds of interesting dynamics happening there. And then um, as the music goes out, there's this uh, power that is like invoked in the audience as we listen to and respond uh, either positively or negatively. And you kind of saw both on display last night. But in one particular kind of poignant moment for me, uh, Whitney sang, which may be arguably her most well-known song, uh, though not her best, uh, I Want to Dance with Somebody. And in that moment, the energy of that song, and you could just, I'm going to put this like an earworm in your head, uh, people just immediately, like in our group, there's like, tw I don't know, it's like 15, 20 people uh, start getting up, and there's power dynamics that are going on. Some people, like um, Pastor Adam, uh, have a certain power with their body to, to move and gyrate in such a way at such a uh, rapid, you know, synchronized pace that it looks like this thing we call dancing. And it was pretty spectacular to watch Pastor Adam and I think Ben's in here, Ryan, uh, Lambert, uh, do this thing called dancing. Then there are others of us that are powerless uh, because our bodies don't move that way in any way that, that it resembles dancing in any kind of like way that you would want to watch. And so we kind of set off to the side, and so there was power differentials on display uh, in the dancing and the responding to this, uh, to this performance. Uh, that just gives you a little bit of an insight into, and you think about every single day, how many power encounters, how many opportunities there are to observe. You just stand back and watch and think about uh, power. It is this mystery, and yet it's become really uh, a major talking point over the last couple decades, particularly in the last decade. Most of you in this room looking out here are under the age of 35 or so, 30. And um, it's maybe just the air that you breathe. People are always talking about it. And it, it's at its best, I think, when we talk about power, it's confusing, right? Because it's complex and there's lots of things that are involved. There's justice issues. There's... Uh, you know, gender dynamics, there's class dynamics, I mean, all these things that go into discussions of power in our day that are just, we're being bombarded with all this stuff, and it can feel really overwhelming to think about power and to know how to respond. Um, at its worst, man, it just breeds a lot of suspicion, 
right? And I think the, the pervasive mood that has been created uh, in this day towards power is one of suspicion, one of cynicism, one of uh, mistrust, you know, just kind of a negative view of power. Like anytime power comes up, it's automatically assumed that it's, it's some kind of evil superpower and it should be avoided uh, at all costs. Now, the question is, how do we get here, right? Like those who've been, you know, those who are older than 30 or 35 um, may know that there's been shifts and, and there's been an amplification of this um, really specifically with technology kind of bringing this conversation. Again, not all bad, right? Like there are injustices that are being uh, rebuked, that are being called out, that are being named, and that are being pushed back as a result of uh, these, these conversations around power. But the question still remains, like, how do we get to this place? And so I want to just kind of talk about why we're doing this series and set it up in the framework of how we got to where we are culturally, just for a minute. Because part of this conversation is academic and intellectual and has a long history in the West. And then part of this is just practical and emotional, and it involves our, just our everyday experience as human beings. But if we don't understand the intellectual roots of it, then we get trapped and caught up in just the, the outrage and the cynicism and this kind of cycle of, you know, like uh, uh, action, kind of physics, like the laws of physics, action, reaction. And that's where we find ourselves sometimes trapped in these, just something happens, somebody responds, somebody calls it out as an injustice, and then we're like, is it? I, I don't know. Like, what? What do I think about this, and how do I think about this? And, and so the intellectual roots of this um, really go back, way back, to uh, a movement called the Enlightenment. So this is not anything new. What we're experiencing, what we're talking about here in terms of power and authority is really has a long history and tradition going back to the Enlightenment. Something changed in the Enlightenment, uh, which has been the, the kind of the movement that's probably shaped the Western imagination the most. And then romanticism kind of following that. And then a whole host of like uh, what we'll call deconstructionist philosophers. Um, there's, there's a lot of players in this, but like some of the key uh, figures have been guys like Immanuel Kant, right? If you go back to the human rights movement and, and what Kant did there. And a guy named Michel Foucault, if, if, you, if you've lived outside of America, you've probably encountered uh, maybe in like a, a theory class, like gender theory or any sort of conversation where we're going to talk about power dynamics. Uh, almost everybody knows the name Michel Foucault. And then a guy named Nietzsche, uh, who was probably one of the most dominant intellectuals uh, of the last couple centuries. And so starting with the Enlightenment, what happened was there was a shift in the way that people began to think about authority. Now, there's a lot of things that changed with the Enlightenment, but really it was about authority. Prior to the Enlightenment, for the majority of human history, authority was considered to be something that was external to human beings. And the real, uh, the real call as a human being was to conform yourself to external uh, realities. So you think about the Greeks and their emphasis on virtue, right? And the idea of virtue is there is a set of external criteria about the good, true, and beautiful that we are to conform to as human beings. Well, that all changed with the Enlightenment. There was just a casting off, really, of all external sources of authority, right? Basically, the kind of the, the mantra was, nobody can tell me what to do, right? And so authority moves from something outside of me to now something inside of me. And there was a shift in uh, kind of the source of authority from, you know, something transcendent, something outside of me defines me to, like, now nobody defines me, and the world becomes a blank canvas for not conformity, but self-expression. Now it's about me kind of just painting onto the canvas of life who I am, and nobody can tell me what to do or who to be. Um, and so there's this casting off of limitations, this casting off of religious authority, right? And saying, like, even the church doesn't have the ability to, to do that. And, and so all these kind of external sources of authority are viewed as bad and evil, and the word we use now would be oppressive, and so the, the goal of life is to liberate ourselves from those oppressive structures and to realize all authority is essentially inside of me to define my reality, not outside. And that was really what framed up a lot of Foucault and Nietzsche's conversations around power and authority was basically when you remove external authority structures, all you're left with is the autonomy and the imagination and the construction of reality from the individual. 
right? Or from society, a collection of individuals who've contracted together in some kind of social contract, right? And so um, you have basically a, a power grab. Life becomes a power grab. If there's nothing outside of us defining us, then I have to make my own reality, right? And so you have individuals or groups vying for power. Um, Nietzsche says it like this. My idea is that every specific, now he was probably the most cynical and pessimistic and searing with this, but he basically says what everybody's thinking real honestly. My idea is that every specific body strives to become master, master to dominate all space and to extend its force, its will to power. That was the name of one of his books and to thrust back all that resists its extension. But it continually encounters similar efforts on the part of other bodies and ends by coming to an arrangement or a union with those of them that are sufficiently related to it. Thus, then they then conspire for power. And the process goes on and on. And for Nietzsche, there was really no right or wrong. There was just power. There was just the will and the clashing of wills. And Nietzsche longed for a day uh, for somebody to come and rescue what he called the Ubermensch or the Superman, right? Who would come and exert raw power and kind of just put society in its place. But it wasn't about morals. It was about strength of the will. Foucault, uh, likewise, begins to talk more specifically about power. And here's what he said. Power is everywhere, diffused and embodied in discourse and knowledge and what he called regimes of truth. Regimes of truth being those socially constructed, interpreted realities that like people in power essentially define through their language, through symbols, through laws and policies, through technology. He talked a ton about technology. Um, they define reality, and then that interpretive grid becomes an exercise of power over other people with less power. Uh, Foucault believed that behind every practice, behind every institution, behind language itself, lay raw power. And his goal was to unmask that power and thereby to liberate its victims from that power. According to uh, Foucault's gospel, and I will call it a gospel because it's a story about what it means to be human. According to Foucault, salvation is found in the endless task of searching out and naming and shaming power wherever it's found. So if you're beautiful, you have power, you should feel ashamed, right? Um, if you are competent and smart, have if you're educated, you know, that's a source of power. And, and that really gave rise to a lot of what we're experiencing now um, in, like on campuses and universities, right? Like, uh, like microaggressions and triggers and these kinds of things really all kind of trace their direct uh, roots back to the teachings of Foucault and his followers. So now we live in this world where the goal is just to call out powers and shame powers, but it doesn't feel like there's any real hopefulness, and so it's given rise to cynicism. We're all familiar maybe with Lord Acton's famous dictum, uh, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And that's kind of how we think about powers, bad, right? We shake our fist at the man, um, and we don't really know who the man is. There's some man out there who's Who's, should be, who's worthy of our fist shaking, you know, but we're not really sure what to do about that. I think it was really captured for me in a great article in the New York Times, uh, kind of capturing the, the sentiment and the mood most Americans feel, people in the West feel about power. Here's the title of the article. Everyone wants power, but everyone thinks someone else has it. Right? Like everyone wants power. This is just otherwise known as social media, right? Like everybody's vying for power, uh, naming and shaming powers, but everyone thinks someone else has it. I feel powerless. This is the master narrative. I am powerless, and everyone else is powerful. And therefore, I should be suspicious of any claims to power or authority. And it's basically my job to deconstruct endlessly and tirelessly every form of power in the world, especially institutional power. And so we see the implosion of lots of institutions. And again, not all bad. There have been some very prophetic, uh, godly critiques that are in line with God's vision for human flourishing where there has been idolatry and injustice named and called out and rebuked and brought down. And those are good things. But 
this narrative of suspicion and this trust and cynicism really has found its way even in the church, right? I think about all the blogs and the books that are being written and the podcasts that are out there and the movements that are questioning and deconstructing everything about the church, right? They're arsonists. They're just burn this thing to the ground without any redemptive power or presence or end game. It is just cynical, cynical, questioning everything, the legitimacy of church authority, hierarchy, tradition, doctrine, uh, and so on. So here's, this, the, the, okay, so it matters to us, and while we're teaching this series, I think we lack a biblical, a shared or unified biblical framework for talking about power. I mean, think about like power discussions in your workplace. I was reading an article uh, recently about the sensitivity, and you guys live in this world. I, I'm a pastor, so I just like read and pray all the time, but you guys live uh, in this world of these relationships. Think about your campus, your university. Some of you guys have positions of authority and leadership and companies in the marketplace, think about how sensitive it is to talk about gender issues, to talk about class issues, to talk about racial and ethnic issues, right? Like which words do you use? How often do you talk about it? Where the, I mean, it's all just this like amoeba of unspoken assumptions and expectations, and yet we feel trapped, right? And we don't know how to deal with it. And I think where we lack, even in the church, just a basic biblical framework for thinking about power. Here's the thing. Power, you just heard it read in Genesis 1. It is everywhere in the Bible, right? From Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, the Bible is chock full of conversations and demonstrations of godly power that creates human flourishing and ungodly power that undermines human flourishing. So, the lack of a biblical framework or a biblical story to place power in, I think, makes us vulnerable. It makes us vulnerable on a couple fronts. One, I think it makes us vulnerable to falling into or allowing ourselves to be co-opted by the harsh language of our secular age, right? So we just rage with everybody else. Or we speak truth to power, but again, we're not really sure who that power is, and we're oftentimes not speaking truth to ourselves. So we're vulnerable to some of the harsh discourse and just the, the cynicism and the polarization and the fragmentation and the diffusion that we feel on a day-in and day-out basis, which leads nowhere. It's a bridge to nowhere, right? Or secondly, we live dangerously, and I think this is really the church's biggest problem with power. We live dangerously unaware of our power. We, we don't know how to own our own power as Christians and as the church, as religious people, uh, in ways that undermine human wholeness. I think of all the ways, uh, like generations before us, Christians have sought to gain power through what they called culture wars, and you had culture warriors, uh, only to gain power uh, and to use it selfishly, right? Like, like the, the oppressed become the oppressors, and oftentimes that can happen even with Christians. We can, we can feel like we're out on the margins. We can feel like we're, per, people use words like persecuted, oppressed, right? And then the goal for Christians becomes how do we retake America for Jesus or whatever, and that can be dangerous, dangerous. And so our vision for the series that we want to recover a vision for power as a good gift from God, right? A vision for power as a good gift from God that is intrinsic to what it means to be humans created in the image of God, which is the whole point of Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. And to see that power as in service of human flourishing and healing and wholeness. I love uh, Andy Crouch. If you haven't read this book, I would highly recommend it. One of my favorites. Um, he's written two books on power in the last few years that I think are some of the best out there. And here's what he says from a Christian standpoint. Uh, one is called Playing God. The other is called Strong in the Week. Um, if you have like only a short amount of time, Strong in the Week is probably better. But Crouch says this, the real news about power is that there's good news about power. <laughs> The real news about power is that there's good news about power. So we're going to talk in this series over the next five weeks about power. We're going to talk today just briefly about the gift of power, the goodness of power, and what it means to be created as powerful beings in the image of a powerful God to use our power to create healing and wholeness for other people. Next week, we're going to talk about the distortion of power and how power leads to injustice and idolatry through the story of uh, the Tower of Babel. And we're going to look at that, the distortion of power. We're going to look at leadership and power. How do we think through all the issues of leadership? Because all of us, whether you believe it or not, have been given roles in your life 
life where you have some measure of leadership, um, how do we think about leadership and power and, and downward mobility and, and lifting up others with the power that's been given to us? We'll talk about privilege and we'll talk about all kinds of things related to that. Uh, we'll talk about institutions and power from the book of Daniel. Uh, and then we're going to talk about what it means to become, um, and, and we're borrowing this word from a Jewish rabbi, what it means to become a creative minority, Right? Not seeking to uh, recapture the center of power, which is really a myth. Like, Christians were never in the center of power anyways. But, like, uh, rather than focusing on the culture wars, what would it look like for us to become a creative minority, right? Um, so let's look today, just for a few minutes, at Genesis chapter 1. Long intro to why we're doing this. I want you guys to understand why and what our goals are. Now to looking at God's good power. So two things, God's good power seen in the creation of the world. And then God's gift of power to us as beings who are created in his image. And we're starting in Genesis 1 because most people in conversations about power start in Genesis 3. And if your only framework is Genesis 3, the fall and sin and the corruption of power, it leaves you in a place of cynicism. But there's a larger story going back to Genesis 1 where we see creative power used for uh, the good of, of people and the good of the world. So um, that's what we see in Genesis chapter 1. Now again, if you weren't here a couple years ago, which 90% of you probably weren't, uh, when we taught on Genesis, let me just remind you something quickly, because uh, I know you're going to be thinking about this, like what was this church believe about Genesis? And like we got all these questions about how old is the earth, and some of you are scientists and cell biologists and seed biologists, and you've got all kinds of advanced degrees in science. Uh, pharmacists, doctors, you know, what, what do we think about uh, Genesis chapter 1? Let me just remind you, Genesis 1 is not primarily a scientific accounting of the origins of the universe. It's not written as a science text to answer modern questions about science, okay? It is primarily actually a song. It is poetry. It is a hymn, right? You see the parallelism. You see repetition. You see symmetry, which in the Hebrew world are all markers for um, figurative language. Now, it employs figurative language to draw literal points, and, and it is historical. Just because it's figurative doesn't mean it's not historical. It employs figurative language to draw a literal historical point about two things, who created the world and why. Did he create the world? And so you see in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is not uh, about giving us a scientific account of the universe. This is a definitive rejection of rival pagan accounts of how the universe came into existence, right? So think about the old Babylonian and Egyptian myths, right? About the gods warring and all this chaos and violence and, 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 and conflict of the gods that creates a world of conflict. No, no, no. The Bible says in the beginning, there was a good, benevolent, personal being who designed the universe for his glory and for our good. It was a radical declaration of an alternative vision of the universe. So that's what's happening in Genesis 1. So what do we see about God's power in Genesis 1? Let me just give you some, some characteristics of God's good power that we see uh, in Genesis 1. This might surprise some of us who grew up in the church uh, or maybe haven't been to church in a while who kind of think of the God of the Old Testament as like this bloodthirsty God who's just like, you know, committing genocide, acts of genocide against whole groups of people. <laughs> That's not actually what you see uh, if you read the Bible and you read the full biblical narrative. Look at what you see here. Um, the first thing we notice about God's power is that it's absolute right? It is absolute. God speaks the universe into existence, right? God's power is, is, is seen in that he speaks it into existence out of nothing. There's no raw materials. There's no raw matter. God simply speaks the universe into existence, ex nihilo, we'd say, out of nothing, right? His power is unlimited, it is unhindered, it is uh, sovereign, it is total and absolute. Um, when you think about power, uh, Webster's Dictionary, I think, defines power as uh, the ability to bring to realization your intentions, right? And the gap between your intention and realization is uh, frustration, right? God has no frustrations. When God speaks, things happen, right? There's no gap between his intention and the realization of his will uh, in the world. Stephen Charnock, a, a theologian, says it like this. His power is the effective realizing of his attributes. Without his power, his mercy would be, would be but feeble pity. 
his promises but lovely sentiments, his threatenings as a mere scarecrow. God's power is infinite, eternal, incomprehensible. It can neither be checked, restrained, nor limited. There's an awesomeness and a majesty to God's power. I mean, do you feel? Like, just get beyond the data. Like, get out of your frameworks of, like, get out of your head. Like, get into your heart. Do you feel the raw power of God pulsating through Genesis 1? Let it be. Let it be. Let it be. And it was so. And it was so. And it was so. Right? God is speaking pregnant with all the power in the universe, and yet we see the the creativity of God as well. The restraint of God, right? I mean, it's amazing how God makes room for others in this narrative. It's the second thing we see, the creativity of God. He says, let it be. This let it be here is speaking to God's desire for creativity. It's not just a raw, brute force of coercion or control. This is creative power, right? Um, Notice what we see here. We see diversity. There's swarms of different kinds of creatures that are created. God doesn't just create one type. He creates according to kinds, right? And there's all kinds of differentiation between different species and cells, right? Like the creativity, the diversity of God, and yet it's a diversity that has unity. It's a coordinated harmony. It's like a symphony, and God is the master conductor of the symphony. And he's saying, let there be strings over here, and let there be, you know, wood instruments over here, and let there be any, and it all just kind of comes together in this beauty. The tense here in Let It Be is really, really interesting. Just let me nerd out on grammar for a second. It's in the justive tense. The justive tense is, uh, the, is different than the imperative tense. The imperative is command. Do this. But notice when God creates, he doesn't say just do this, although they do it. What does he say? Let it be. Do you see like the kindness of God? God is making room for things to grow and unfold and develop, not with commands, but with invitations. Let it be. Let it be. Let it be. And then it happens, right? I mean, this is God creating space for agency, right? For choice, for abundance, for multiplication of creativity. I mean, what an amazing picture. God, the most unlimited, powerful being in the universe, says, let it be. Right? Like, think about how much different your life would be if instead of having to use command and control methods of keeping people in their place, you could just say, let it be. Let it be in your workplace. Let it be with your kids. I wish that was parenting. You know, like, let it be. That's just not. But, you know, it would be nice. That's the kind of power that God has. It's, it's creative. It's relational. He says, let us make. This isn't just something that God does alone, right? Like, God doesn't lock himself in a room with a computer and, like, you know, geek out. He, he like, throws open the shutters and invites others in. This is not the domineering decree of a distant sovereign, but an invitation from a personal God to personal beings. Let us make, referring to the community, most theologians think of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, collaborating together, creating together. And then he speaks, notice in verse 28, to human beings as people, not peons, not products, not commodities, but as people, as persons. God's creative power is for persons. It's not to dehumanize us. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. This is the first command in Genesis chapter 1. Subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God is a relational God. Benevolent. He's benevolent, right? There's blessing here. There's all these divine benedictions. It was good. It was good. It was good. We see that God's power, rather than being an oppressive force of control, is a liberating force for flourishing, right? It releases the potential. Here's how I define flourishing in Genesis 1. It releases the potential for everything and everyone to become everything it's intended to be. Everything and everyone to become everything it's intended to be. That's what we see in Genesis chapter 1. And then it's collaborative. Again, it goes, it's relational, it's collaborative, right? Uh, God is saying, like, the best kind of creativity, the best kind of power is not to be hoarded, but it's to be shared. It's open source, right? It invites others in. It includes others to reach its fullest potential. Again, like, God could have done this alone. He was certainly wise enough and powerful enough, 
And yet God says, I want to invite human beings into this process of creation. I want to allow you to be uh, participants in the creative work of unfolding the potential pregnant possibilities of creation. That should be liberating for us, right? Because it takes the pressure off us as individuals, autonomous individuals, to have to make meaning of our world. The highest form of freedom, I'd actually argue, we see in Genesis chapter 1 is not a freedom of independence or autonomy. It's a freedom of inter- interdependence and of laying down our will, surrendering our will to something greater, someone greater. Oliver O'Donovan, who's write, written, written quite extensively on power and Christianity, says it like this, where authority is, and that's what we see in Genesis 1, God's benevolent authority. Where authority is, freedom is. And where authority is lost, freedom is lost. To be under authority is to be freer than to be independent. That's a paradox that you should just wrap your minds around today for a little bit. So what do we learn from Genesis chapter 1 about power? Let me give you some definitions, power and authority. So that we're all on the same page. What we mean by power, what we mean by authority is we use it throughout the series. We learn in Genesis 1, I think, that power is the capacity for meaningful action. The capacity, the ability to act in a way within a frame of meaning, within a story. In this case, it's the story of creation that's going to lead us forward to the story of redemption, right? So when we talk about power, we're talking about the capacity to act in meaningful ways within uh, meaningful stories. Second thing we learn is authority. So we see authority, and power is more comprehensive. Authority is a little bit more narrow here, but I would define authority as the legitimacy to exercise benevolent power. The legitimacy or the credibility or the authorization, the commissioning to exercise benevolent power, right? God is all-powerful. He is authoritative over the universe, which doesn't just mean he's authoritative over. It also means he's an author, right? And he's calling forth a story, and he's inviting us into that story. But this is the frame of reference for thinking about authority and power. And again, Crouch puts it like this. What we see in Genesis chapter 1 is that power is for flourishing, not oppression. The roots of power, the design of power, is for human well-being and for the the community of the world to experience and to become all that it was intended to be. Peace, shalom, love, harmony, unity. That's what we see in Genesis chapter 1. Not chaos, not fragmentation, not polarization, not uh, oppression. Okay, so God then gifts this power to us as human beings, right? He gifts this power to us as human beings. This is what we call the Imago Dei, right? So it's important for us to establish God's power because that becomes the template and the pattern and the aspiration for all human power. Apart from God's power and a vision for his power and an understanding of the contours of his power, our only hope for human power is the authority of the individual, the authority of a culture, the consent of the governed or the state, right? Which, what happens when you strip away God's power and you have a moment like we're in now, our secular age, what begins to happen is those people, those entities, those uh, institutions, the individual, the state, or a culture begin to assume God-like power and begin to usurp God's role. And so the only hope, I would argue, that we actually have for moving forward in a healthy way with power is to acknowledge God's power and to begin to live from God's power in our everyday lives. That is the hope of the Imago Dei. That's the hope of the Imago Dei. It's not just about characteristics like, well, we can think or, hey, we're kind of like God in these little ways or functions. No, it is we have been given the very power of God to make meaningful action in the world, to make something beautiful and good and authentic in the world. So look at the characteristics of the Imago Dei. God creates man. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea. So God creates man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. He, male and female, he created them. So the Imago Dei is for men and women, right? It is, there is a vision of equality here. There's a vision of dignity here that's woven into the story. But some of the characteristics of the Imago Dei, it's limited, right? Uh, it's limited. We don't have God's power. We're not unhindered. Uh, there's always a gap between our intention and our realization of things, right? And if you doubt me, like move into a house in Broderpool, right? We, we call these like classic homes or beautiful old homes, which just means they're falling apart and they need lots of maintenance and it's very expensive to live in them, okay? Um, it's like, uh, you know, exhibit A, I'm, I'm like repairing a fence, trying to repair a fence this weekend at my house. I've been doing so for the last 10 months, putting all my cards on the table, um, 
My wife said I had a year. It would take me a year, so I'm 10 months just coming right under there. Um, but we, we create in a different kind of way than God creates or makes, right? Like God creates bara. That's the word that's only used of God here in Genesis. We create asa. Those are two different words. Asa, we take raw materials and we try to fashion them creatively towards uh, redemptive purposes. But there's always a futility in our creation. We never fully realize, right? Like, you're never fully there. It's like, I get done with the fence and Emily's, you know, just like, oh man, but now it makes the rest of the fence look so bad. We need to address this. And now the porch doesn't look, it's just like a game of whack-a-mole. You know what I mean? Like, business deals, it's the same thing. It's like, if I just close this deal, if I just get this project finished, if I can just get hired at this job, if I can just raise these funds, then everything will be okay. And then what happens? It's like the, the goal line moves again, and then you're back at it having to do new deals, and you feel like you're always on the hunt. You know what I'm saying? That's, that's kind of the futility of power. We are limited in our capacity to bring about those things that we di- deeply desire as human beings. And Mago Day is relational. It's rooted in a relationship with God. It's not just a transaction where we work for God and do things for God. It's a relationship where God speaks to us as persons and he invites us to respond to him with our whole being, heart, mind, soul, strength, all of our body, all of our life, all of our vocation, all of our world should be viewed through the lens of a relationship with our creator who blesses us and designs us to do creative things in the world. And then lastly, it's representational. The Imago Dei is representational. We represent God in the world. We're commissioned and called by God, not to serve ourselves with this power, but rather to serve our fellow human beings and creation itself, to unleash its potential for flourishing. So authority we see in power isn't ultimately rooted in the consent of the governed. It's not rooted in our capacities. It's not rooted in control. It's rooted in the divine calling. God calls us and he authorizes us to exercise benevolent power for the good of others. This acknowledges, the Magadai acknowledges both our dependency, our limitations, right? I am not God. I can't do what God does. And when I try to play God, bad things happen in the world. But it also recognizes our dignity, right? The possibilities of being able to use my capacities to serve God and other people. And so we tend to think of authority as only authority over things. But what we see in Genesis 1 is that authority is also under, right? Like under. It's not just me bossing people around. I've been called under God. I have authority as a pastor, right? Granted to me by you as the church. And I'm doing that not as a sovereign, not as a tyrant, but as a servant of the Most High God. I've been authorizing commission within very specific vocational, a very specific vocational realm to use my authority or power to serve your benefit that's my commission as a pastor you've been commissioned in your job in your role as a husband or a father or a single person as a neighbor right with your roommates to use your flourishing and not see that as some autonomous thing that you're doing but rather to see yourself as under god and then under other people serving them and lifting them up and sacrificing for their good so we all have power that's kind of the big thing i want you to see is like you are a powerful being right? We tend to live in this narrative of powerless and powerful. And we see everybody else is powerful and we can feel powerless in the face of what just feels like brute coercion and control and chaos in the world. But the reality is, if you are in the image of God, if the Bible story is true, you are a person of dignity and power, right? Now, it's relative. We all have different power. It's not probably proper to speak of power as much as powers, but you have power. Let me give you some examples of some of the power that you carry that you maybe may not even be aware of, right? All of the different ones of us have positional power, right? You're a boss. You're, uh, you, you work for this uh, company and you have authority over these people. You're a manager. You're a small group leader. You're a Bible study leader, right? You have some position. You're a parent. You're a, a spouse. Like, you, you, you know, there's all kinds of different examples, but all of us in different ways have positional power and forms of that uh, along a spectrum, personal power, right? Like you have skills and experiences, right? Like I'm just, like I'm a white male who has a terminal degree and that gives me a certain amount of personal power in America, right? And like I can either be ashamed of that and try to apologize for that or I can just name that and own that and say, hey, I stand here as one who needs to be aware of the personal power that I carry with me by virtue mostly of things I didn't do anything to accrue, 
All right? So we're aware of those personal things. Our spiritual, we have spiritual power. Like in the church, different roles and different spiritual gifts, we have spiritual power. We can invoke God's name and like play God-like games even in the church, right? Like God told me, uh, like I had a friend in college, we were on a mission trip, and a girl walked up to him in the hotel uh, while we were like doing mission work. And she's like, God told me we're supposed to get married. Whoa, that's some serious like spiritual power. And my buddy just like without like right back to her said, God didn't tell me that. You know, so like. (laughs) Spiritual power, projected power, right? Representative power. We represent things in people's lives because of our position or because of our personality or whatever. Relational power. You've been in a relationship with somebody that they trust you. That's a certain kind of power. Cultural power. And this is really what we talk about the most as a society. Age. Right? In diff- different eras, being older has been viewed as good and not so much now. We live in more of a sibling society now where we don't value our elders as we used to. But age, ethnicity, gender, class, we'll talk about intersectionality in a few weeks. But these are all ways that we can think about power. All of us have relative power. The question is not will we have power, but will we own our power and seek to use our power for creative ends and purposes. So I want to invite you just to reflect as we go to communion here on what it would look like for us to recapture this vision, Genesis chapter 1, power is a gift for flourishing. You are created in the image of a powerful God who has imbued you with inherent dignity, worth, power, the capacity for meaningful action in the world, to be used to serve and bring about flourishing and healing in the world. And you may not feel that way because the world works to undermine that power. Right? The world works to rob you of that essential dignity in all kinds of ways. The church can seek to rob you even in certain ways. Religion can do that, right? But the reality is you are a powerful being created in the image of a loving and benevolent, powerful God. So what would it look like for us to own that and to begin to redirect our power as image bearers for creative purposes rather than destructive purposes? Starts by us just naming and owning the gift, right? And looking to God to help us create a new way forward. I want to use this two by two quickly and throw this up because this will be something that we come back to. Uh, Crouch has this in his book, The Strong and the Weak. Flourishing is up and to the right, and we've talked about that. High, high authority, but high vulnerability defines vulnerability as exposure to meaningful risk, self-sacrifice. And then he lays out these other quadrants. We'll talk about exploitation next week and control and dominance with the story of Babel. Uh, human suffering is more of an obvious one. When you have low authority and high vulnerability, you tend to fall into that quadrant. But the one we don't often think about is the lower left. And I feel like that's where so many of us live. It's one of withdrawal and passivity and cynicism. And so I want to invite us as we close here to think about what would it look like for us to do two things with this gift of power. One, I want us to think about resistance. What would it look like for us to resist the tendency to deny or use our power in destructive ways. And we've all done it, right? So for some of us, that might look like repenting of the ways that we've used our power to undermine human flourishing for other people, the ways that we've used our power to control people, maybe our spouse, maybe our children, maybe fellow employees, to manipulate people, to abuse people, to stifle them, to block their advancement as human beings. For most of us, though, it's just going to look like being aware of the cynicism and the tendency to withdraw and to kind of say, I don't know what to do with power, so I'm just going to step back and not do anything. To not do anything is to do something. It is to act, but it's to abdicate the responsibility that's been given to you as an image bearer to create flourishing in our world. And so to resist that cynicism that leads us to withdraw. And it doesn't mean that there aren't legitimate spaces for prophetic critique, but just that we want to resist the tendency to become parasites, right? Living on the host, living on the power, living on uh, history, the things that have happened to us in the past, not creating anything, but rather tearing things down, deconstructing things, becoming arsonists instead of architects. Those are two different ways to live. And then secondly, recognizing that true power comes from God and receiving the gift of power that comes from God. The New Testament talks about power all the time, right? There's a power that comes inside of us and changes us. It doesn't doesn't press us down. It liberates us to become all that God has designed us to be as 
human beings, spiritual, emotional, physical, intellectual beings. Second Peter 1.3, Peter says, um, God's divine power has granted to us everything that we need to thrive in life and godliness. Everything we need in life has been given by God. We've been empowered by his spirit. As a matter of fact, I would say this, only those under that kind of power, that greater power that comes from God, can be trusted to properly use the lesser power that we exercise in this world. Right? The more in tune you are with God's power, the more you're receiving that and allowing that to change you. I believe, actually, the more legitimacy and credibility you'll have to exercise benevolent power in the world. Right? It requires a ton of faith. It requires the cardinal virtues of Christianity to come alive and to wake up in us. Faith, hope, and love. Faith instead of doubt and skepticism. Hope instead of despair. Love instead of apathy. But I would argue that you already know what it looks like to experience healthy power, right? Like, like you've had a parent who loved you really well. You've had a coach that loved you and used their power and authority to lift you up. You had a mentor, a teacher. You've had a friend. You've had a boss who created space for you to flourish. And they used their power redemptively instead of destructively. Now, I want you to think about that and to think about what would that look like? That comes right from God. That has not come from the world. What would it look like for you to receive that power, right? The kind of power that humbles us and then sends us out into the world to serve others. That's why Jesus came. Colossians chapter 2, he stripped the powers. He put them to open shame. He came, Jesus came to live the life that we couldn't live. A powerful, the most powerful being in the universe became vulnerable, Right? He sacrificed himself for us, but he was raised from the dead. And that resurrection power of Jesus dealt a decisive blow to the destructive powers of sin and self-centeredness and opened up new possibilities for all of us to experience the life-changing power of God's grace and to extend that power to other people. The gospel changes everything. And it changes our relationship to power. Let me close with this quote from Crouch, and we'll go to communion. The church is, or should be, and can be, the place where all our power is put in the perspective of God's great story of creation, redemption, and new creation. This is the reason it's foolish and short-sighted to say we don't have power in the church. The church as a human community pulses with the inescapable power that comes with image-bearing. The church as a fellowship of sinners includes and at its worst enables every possible species of God playing. But as a community called into being by the Holy Spirit, the church most importantly is caught up in the resurrection power that will ultimately bring the world to judgment and renewal. Far from being aloof or detached from power, the church is all about power. The end of power, meaning the purpose of power, the taming of power, and the unleashing of power for human flourishing. That is the beginning of our story as Christians. And if you read Revelation, that is the end of our story. God uses his power to create a new people, a new city, right? Garden to city. Revelation, new city, a tree of life that brings healing for the nations, that reconciles enemies and makes them friends. And we spend eternity working that out together. That's the story of power. I want to invite you to receive communion now as a reminder of what God's doing. That's what we celebrate every week in communion. The power of God available to us. His life, death, and resurrection literally brought inside of us, radically reorienting and reordering our desires, our longings, and our affections, and then empowering us to live together as a creative community in the world. If you're not a Christian, receive that power today, right? It's available to any of us that would cry out, and, and just say, have mercy on my God. I'm, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner that needs to be saved by your grace. Change me, God. Right? So if you come to communion today, you're a follower of Jesus, come and take a piece of the bread, tear it off and dip it into the cup and be reminded that God is for you and he is with you and he's empowering you for these good works. If you're not a follower of Jesus, we'd invite you, come to faith in Jesus, right? Receive Jesus today. Receive his power in your life or stay in your seat and, and just think about what would it look like? What would it look like for you to encounter that kind of God with that kind of power and to surrender your life to that kind of benevolent power that seeks your good? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for...